Welcome to Sportonomics presented by Uncle Charlie. I'm Tyler Webb. And I'm outdoor Jake. And today, Jake, while you're outside, we'll be talking about prison <laughs> rodeos. We'll hear from friend of the show and sports content creator Kate Maniscalco on the future of sports media, specifically in baseball, and her experiences working as a young woman in sports. And at the very end, we'll each give our biggest winners and losers from the summer. But first, Jake, things are going to get worse before they get better for baseball's worst team, as the Oakland A's now have to decide where they're going to be playing their home games between 2025 and 2028 as their new stadium is being built in Las Vegas. Now, as most listeners of the show probably already know, A's owner John Fisher forced the team out of Oakland after repeated attempts by the city to get them to stay. Fisher cited the dilapidated Oakland Coliseum as the main reason the team had to relocate, even though he never himself offered to renovate the existing ballpark. And now with the team set to move to Vegas, they have to find a new place for the next three seasons as their stadium gets built. That's because their current lease at the Coliseum expires after the 2024 season, which is next year, and their new uh, Vegas ballpark isn't set to open until 2028. Now, Jake, the team basically has three options. The first is that they can stay in Oakland until their new stadium is finished. Second, they could play uh, across the bay at Oracle Park where the Giants play. Or third, they could play at their organization's AAA stadium in Vegas. But before I tell you why each of these options aren't exactly ideal, I want to hear from you, Jake, on which route you think the team should take. Mm, okay, can I offer a fourth option? Sure. I, I don't know if that's in, in play, but let's get creative here. I think they should do a barnstorming tour. It makes no sense at all from a financial perspective. It makes no sense at all from like a baseball operations perspective. It would be probably one of the biggest nightmares for them to deal with. It would also be really good for baseball, I think. And I'm not saying barnstorming in just like other cities that have MLB teams already and only playing away games. I'm saying like go to a bunch of just random places throughout the United States that have like triple A teams or double A teams or partner league teams or no teams at all, like cities that just don't have a stadium anymore. Like I guess Savannah, Georgia might be an okay example here because the Savannah Bananas aren't even in a league anymore. Like that would be really cool for the actual A's team to play a game in that stadium. And what a great opportunity for the uh, for Major League Baseball to take a walk down memory lane and uh, open up the history book. So just throwing that out there as a fourth option. I don't think it makes any sense at all to do it. But because of that, I think it makes a little bit of sense to do it. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, if we know anything at this point about John Fisher and his cheapskate ways, we know that he probably wouldn't like losing out on the revenue that comes from home games. However small it is, and great segue, because right now the Coliseum does have the worst attendance in the MLB. They, they've had that they last lose? What do they have to lose? Close to a decade. It's a good point. You know, they average currently less than 9,000 fans a game. No other team in the, in the MLB in the last couple of years has averaged less than or fewer than 12,000 fans. So they're far and away behind. And I've often made the case that John Fisher isn't even running the team to capitalize on the game day revenue. He just mm-hmm. understands that he can take media distributions that are split evenly among teams and run the team at a really small payroll and make a bunch of money without selling a bunch of tickets. So yeah, why not, not a horrible like, why, idea. Why not slide into a baseball dead zone like like a Utah or a um or like an Iowa where there's not a major league baseball team there and you know, play some baseball. I bet you could you could draw ten thousand people. I think so. Well, what it's going to come down to is what the MLB decides, and they're yeah. going to have final say here, along with the Player yeah. Association. And so the factors that they're weighing are primarily the city of Oakland now making the demands that if 
the A's decide to re-sign their lease for Paul the next three years, uh, the next four years, that they're requesting MLB that they get to keep the name the A's in the city uh-huh. of Oakland so that if the team that John Fisher currently owns moves, they don't get to call themselves the A's. They'll have to come up with a another team name and that then they become the city of Oakland first in line for a future expansion franchise in which they get to regain the name of the of the Oakland A's. So it's basically a way for them to like sneak out from underneath John Fisher as a horrible team owner and say, we get to keep the name, we get to keep the history, we get to keep the brand equity that we've built up in the city, and then somebody else can come in here and own the team better than, than John Fisher could, which is interesting. I'm not sure if the MLB is going to go for it because they also have the option just to ship the team across the bay. Um, moved them to San Francisco for a year, which hasn't happened since 1974, 1975 in New York. It's going to be a possible revenue loss opportunity for the Giants, however, if they have to double up on the games that they play at their stadium. Why is because, it a revenue loss opportunity? Well, assuming that they the MLB still allows Oakland to keep that revenue as home revenue, now the Giants don't get to host a concert there mm. or uh, one of those top golf. You know, like they, they lose on the opportunity to like rent out the stadium when games aren't being played. And I'd imagine they, they would collect some rent from Oakland being put there, but it probably wouldn't be as much as they would if they were able to sell it out. Um, you know, when the team wasn't there, the final option is uh, the Oakland are the Oakland A's moving to their AAA Las Vegas field, which is aptly named the Las Vegas Ballpark. The only issue there is it's not a covered field, and so sitting in a baseball game in the middle of July in Las Vegas probably isn't a super enjoyable experience. And it's also only seats ten thousand, and I believe MLB probably has some sort of minimum seating requirements. Um, it, it's been noted by front office sports that they would need to expand that stadium if they were going to put an MLB team there for upwards of three seasons. So none of these decisions are are really ideal. And, and Jake, I, I think you propose a unique situation. What, what I wanted to focus on here, because what's going to happen is going to happen. Um, it probably is just going to, the flow charts always goes, you know, what makes the league and the specific team owners the most amount of money. That's probably what's going to happen. If I had to predict something, it would probably be they play either in San Francisco for a year or maybe they find a way to renegotiate their lease in Oakland and stay there for a year and John Fisher has to make some you know public declaration of improving the stadium or something like that but I don't see any way of where the city of Oakland retains the rights to the name the A's but what I am interested in Jake from a broader branding perspective is how does a team like o- Oakland recover from this I I always found a lot of comedy in the fact that the A's could be leaving Oakland. They know that they're leaving Oakland, but now John Fisher has to stay in the city for another three years as it's basically like your parents get divorced, but they have to live in the same house for three years, which obviously breeds a whole lot of awkward tension. So from a branding perspective, what do you do if you're the Oakland A's here? Yeah, well, you can look to Prince as an example. They could change their name to a symbol. And instead of being the Oakland A's, it could be the team formerly known as the Oakland A's and they could let Oakland have the have the city have the name of the team, which which would be an interesting approach. Um, I, I think that it is something that takes a lot of time, and I think that it's something that takes a lot of really good execution. I mean, it's just like building any other brand; it, it happens over the course of not not just months, but oftentimes decades, where the best brands are built, and and you see that throughout all sports, right? Like the New York Yankees were not the uh, the biggest brand in the world in. 1905 um nobody even realized that that was like baseball wasn't really a big thing i don't even know if the yankees were played in 1905 so i might be off on my baseball history there but the point i'm getting at is like they need to prove themselves uh day in and day out for the next 10 years or so in order to be a well-respected brand um 
in baseball, but uh, I think more importantly within their, their new community that they're moving into, I think they probably have a lot of disgruntled fans in Oakland and they will forever and always. People will always resent them for for moving. They'll always resent them for um, poor management maybe. Um, yeah. and, and it's going to be really difficult to rekindle that relationship. Um, to continue your analogy, it's really hard to get back together with, uh, with someone that you, you, you broke up with or you, you divorced, uh, especially when you have to sit, sit around with them for three or four years and, and lick your wounds while they're sitting right next to you. Yeah. I, I want you to put on your agency owner hat for a second, because I think Which agency? a part of this is an agency. Yeah. Your marketing agency owner. I think a part of this I actually is that... literally have that on. <laughs> yeah, but not, 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 not yet available for those watching. Um, part of this is the, I would say as fans, Oakland fans would describe like the chronic mismanagement or under delivery of the ownership group to put a competitive baseball f- team on the field. I, I think if you were to boil down the Oakland A's fans, uh, up, the, why they're upset with the team, it's because their owner basically realized that he could take, you know, a hundred million dollar revenue distribution from MLB media rights and cut his payroll to the point where he would still be making a lot of money because his costs were far less than the revenues that he was guaranteed every single year, regardless of if you put a competitive team on the field that could you know, draw, drive ticket sales or, or, or merchandise sales. So there, there's some aspect of that that I, I think is just hard to alleviate from a pure marketing standpoint. I do think, let's say John Fisher commits, as he's described, that he will to building a, a competitive team once he moves the team which I think is another stab in the back to Oakland fans that he's only going to start trying once he gets into a new location. Is, is there some sort of self-referential yes. marketing strategy yes. you could take once <laughs> you get to Las Vegas and be like, look, now we're trying. You know, like, what what can you do from a messaging standpoint? Or do you just have to kind of, it seems like I was getting the gist from you, just like you're starting from square one, you know, you're starting from zero and you just have to start building goodwill going forward. And there's no, there's no use in looking back. Yeah, well, it's it's both, right? Like you can't just completely ignore what happened in the past and the mediocrity of their their team, especially on the field, but then um, potentially also at the organizational level. I I don't know much about how the actual business side of it was run um, from a day to day basis, but they they cut they cut a lot of things uh, on the baseball side, uh, but they're they're definitely going to have to acknowledge it at some point. And that's going to be one of the primary ways that they can build credibility, I think, within the new community that they're moving into. Like an interesting play for them might be rebranding for this upcoming year to the B's and then just a letter B. And then when they when they move, inevitably, uh, they, they can then be the A's again because they're going to be a better version of themselves. I don't know. That was a really silly idea, but it is an idea. Um, but then I just think that they're going to have to lean into the fact that they were a pretty mediocre organization, and now they're they're coming into a, a new thing. And maybe it requires a rebrand. Maybe it requires a completely blank slate that they're operating off of, and they need to get rid of the name, uh, the A's. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. Yeah, I, there's obviously going to be a rebrand, right? Once they move to Las Vegas, like just basic components of, you know, the word mark are going to have to change because they're in a new city. Sure. Um, I, I do think it'd be interesting for them like organizationally to lean into this sort of bad boy mantra. You saw yeah. this like back in With the Houston sixties and seventies. Yeah. Houston is a great current example. Like even I'm thinking like the Oakland Raiders, True. Um, you know, now the Las Vegas Raiders, like you always portray them even today as having this really hard nosed, tough, almost thuggish attitude to them just because they're the, you know, the Raiders are 
like a pirate ship emblem or a pirate emblem. And so you kind of have these, this bad boy mantra. It'd be interesting. Moving to Las Vegas almost seems fitting that the A's could do the same thing where maybe at some sort of visual, you know, on some sort of visual level or even with some of the players that they invest in, you know, they maybe get some of these harder nosed guys that are kind of fuck you. I don't care what you think about me type of guys. And they just lead into, lean into this bad boy persona almost. And they, they go so far in one direction that uh, fans look at it and they're like, look, I'm like, they're just owning, they're just owning it. They like, they, the team knows that we hate them. The team knows that they're uh, sort of the villains too. of the league. Yeah, <laughs> right. And so maybe that's maybe that's the direction they go, um, leaning all the way in. But I have a feeling they'll probably be playing it safe, if I had to guess. Yeah, most likely. Most likely. I mean, they, they could convert to, what, the the A-holes? They could be that. That would be interesting. <laughs> the gamblers, something, yeah, yeah just gamblers, something like real, yeah, yeah Vagabond. I, I think another way, practically, they'll probably try to shield their brand reputation, if I had to guess, it, it is probably like identifying a cornerstone player or two that they'll be bringing, you know, they'll be bringing with, or maybe they'll be signing once they move to Las Vegas as sort of like this face of the franchise type person. Sure. And you just build and humanize around that individual person. And so no longer are you, you know, hating this like nameless, faceless organization. I guess it sort of has a face in John Fisher, but you're no longer like hating this organization, but you find yourself relating and, um, you're wanting to root for specific people on the team. And those are, you know, yeah. fan favorites. And maybe they just lean really hard into player watch nostalgia. Player of the watch. Yeah. They, they, they player watch their own and, franchise. And the interesting, like you look at the the Raiders as an example, having Tom Brady on the cap table is really, it's really interesting. It doesn't really matter from like a business perspective or like a on-field performance perspective, but having that brand which he is a brand now at this point like having that brand affiliated with the organization is an interesting credibility play for them um especially when he's actually around a little bit you never thought about it like that i mean me neither consider tom brady and the las vegas raiders yeah like brady has this air of you know prestige and elegance to him whereas the raiders current owner mark davis is widely known as being one of the poorest owners in all of professional sports i believe the poorest owner in in the nfl and so he, he almost has this white trash persona where it's like the raiders can't do anything right because they have a, buff, a buffoon running the team but you bring tom brady onto the cap table and all of a sudden you have a really sexy sleek stylish guy that seems to know what he's doing has plenty of money like never messes up mr perfect and it i think you're right does help change the the reputation of the team so maybe they need a you know maybe they need some outside investment from a from a tom brady or, or somebody just as happy to uh help turn the image around that that would be that might be a smart move for john fisher to have somebody be more public in the ownership group than him because right now he's public enemy number one so maybe he needs yeah. a human shield yeah write that down tom brady's already <laughs> in vegas he's in vegas already that's free advice john fisher okay speaking of outlaws and convicts and uh <laughs> i don't know cowboys <laughs> let's uh i'm curious about prison rodeos so for the listeners jake uh prefaced me <laughs> prefaced this topic with me yesterday and said we'll be talking about prison rodeos tomorrow and i didn't ask any more questions because i wanted to save them all for right now so why don't you take it away mr kranz yeah i, I will take it away so i to, i was um i was watching the history channel as as i sometimes do and this was a part of the history channel um i had never heard of it before apparently it was a big thing but i'll, I'll, I'll give you a little history lesson here and in, in the earlier part of it um to get you up to speed i don't know if you read what i had sent over at all but i'll give you a little history lesson and then we can just talk about these convict cowboys and the uh, the history and the the business of prison rodeos. So, the year is 1931, and there is a new general manager within the Texas prison system 
named Marshall Lee Simmons. So this guy, um, you might recognize his name, actually. There's there's a few movies that he's tangentially a part of, um, but he, he was a badass. And he was really focused on improving the, the prison reform system uh, for those that were behind bars, but he was also um, really, really strict on uh, making sure that people were following the laws, and then if they didn't, that that they had a little bit of Texas justice served to them. So he was one of the people that was key in tracking down and then ambushing Bonnie and Clyde. So I'm sure you've probably heard of Bonnie and Clyde before and maybe are aware of the ambush there, but he was one of the people that was key in that. Um, so just to, to provide a little bit of context around that area. Um, and when he came to power, the prison system, as it still kind of is today, was in serious financial trouble. They had barely enough money to run the system, and they had no money for um, extras is what they called them, but it was essentially excess expenses. So if like a older prisoner needed dentures or somebody needed glasses or they wanted to serve up educational programs or recreational programs, none of those things really existed because they were just running on such a shoestring budget and nobody really cared to invest more into the prison system. And so in order to raise money, in order to give these prisoners something to look forward to, and in order to keep them active, he came up with this idea of hosting a prison rodeo. So we're down in Texas, right in the heart of Huntsville, Texas, time about 30,000 people, and they had the prison right there. And so they decided, hey, let's put a stadium uh, tangential to the prison, and let's throw a rodeo. So they did it year one, 1931. Not a ton of people came out, but there was some momentum there. And the prisoners really liked it, which was a really good thing for them because it was something they could do essentially for free. They could um, have them actually train and then also raise all the livestock that were involved in the running of the the rodeo. And then they were, they were able to incentivize them to just stay active and uh, continue to improve themselves while they were still behind bars. And so 1931 happened, and then 1932 and 1933 rolled around, and the crowd started to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and they eventually had 15,000 people in 1933. So two years after the first run of this thing, 15,000 people were showing up for this event in downtown Huntsville at the local prison, which was just the craziest thing. And so through the years, they started to put on more and more shows. They, they, they took a year off in 1943 for World War II, but 1944, they were right back at it. And all along the way, they started to bring on more acts. They started to bring in new performers and famous people. They had celebrities. They had actors and actresses and musicians. So uh, people like John Wayne and George Strait and Johnny Cash and Dolly Parton, tons of people like that were just coming for the Texas Prison Rodeo. And in fact, this is a really interesting bullet point here. Johnny Cash played his first ever concert at the Texas Prison Rodeo. Wow. Yeah, so there's a fun fact for you. So this thing, it ran from 1931 all the way through 1986 when they shut it down. Uh, They shut it down because of the stadium. There were a lot of improvements that they needed to make to the stadium, and then they just didn't want to make the investment into it. They didn't really have the money for it, and I think the the Texas Texas prison system really just wanted to get out of the rodeo business, which makes a lot of sense. The people that were originally involved weren't involved anymore, and it didn't really make sense for a prison system to be involved in rodeo and and so they did this for about 50 years. And so my question for you is, why do you think this worked for so long? When, as you're describing this, I, I just picture Roman Colosseum gladiators fighting and, and, and trying to survive. To me, it feels like 
a rodeo is already a popular institution. It actually was institution. It actually wasn't at the time. Really? Yeah. So, so okay. Inter- interesting that you bring that up. So, before the the rodeo was a big thing, uh, they they just did like wild west shows, and so there, it was it was skits, and it was more so like carnival like. And as the rodeo came along, and people started to get more competitive, and they were actually like, I'll call it quote unquote like leagues and tournaments and um, actual competitions happening. That's when this was starting to come along too. So that's it's a very important factor that that as the rodeo was ramping up, this was happening Certainly. at the exact same time, and this was actually like the pinnacle of it, right? So this this yeah. was this was the like the quintessence of a great rodeo. So they almost introduced stakes into you know an entertainment property that maybe beforehand didn't have any sure. reason to really watch it. You know, there wasn't like a, a threat of injury or possibly death or a, a winner and a loser because it was sort of like pre-scripted entertainment. And as as you described, rodeos get developed and I think probably attract this natural attention just because there is an essence of the unknown. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how long this person's going to stay on the bull. You don't know if they're going to get hurt. You don't know who's going to win. It's To me, the logical extreme of that is trying to find somebody who is as desperate as possible. I imagine a lot of these prisoners are the type of guys at the time that have nothing to lose and they're willing to do anything to stay on the bull for as, as long as possible. And it's like the most intense and purely distilled form of en- entertainment that you could find at the time. So whereas, and I'm, I'm glad you jumped in with that little anecdote, whereas you went from these pre-scripted live Wild West reenactments beforehand to something that had some un- undetermined outcome to now you have an undetermined outcome with somebody who you know is trying their absolute damnedest to not let the worst thing happen to them, I think is just, to me, like just pure distilled entertainment. And uh, it, it seems like the reason it was popular was because it was quite literally the best show in town and you couldn't go anywhere and find anybody that was trying harder in the rodeo or right. was more committed to <laughs> staying alive or just doing it as good as they possibly could have. Right. And I think it's like, it's important to note that like the people that were behind bars and doing this, the convict cowboys is what they called them. They're not like the, the, the best, uh, the best cowboys around, right? Like they're not, they're not the best riders. They're, they're absolutely not going to have the most amount of time to train, but they did have, in my opinion, the most set uh, on the line. Um, so what they did is that they actually took the money from this and they reinvested into the prisons, um, that they're a part of. But what they also did is for those that were winning and they had a bunch of different events that people were able to take part in for those that were winning, they actually paid them quite well relative to what they were making elsewhere. So another big piece of this is the um, Texas Prison Industries, I think is the actual name of it. That's off the top of my head though. So correct me if I'm wrong, people that are listening. Um, but I mean, they're, they're making everything from like office chairs and growing cotton to actually making license plates, which is still a big part of what they do. But they were giving them like a penny an hour or two cents an hour. And they were able to utilize that stuff within the commissary when they're in prison and um, leverage it to get cigarettes or um, buy some snacks or whatever they wanted to do. And and at the rodeo, like they might walk home one night with $100 or $1,000, which is not significant in respect to like what you could maybe get at another rodeo. But when you're in prison and you have no other means or no other way to gather any type of income, that's a pretty significant uh, payday for you. Certainly. And I think that all plays into why it was such an entertaining product for people to watch outside of the prison is because nothing 
excites people or drives live viewership, in-person viewership, like the knowledge that there are stakes, like the people that you're watching truly care more than you do about winning the thing. I mean, that's that's the pitch that a lot of sporting events have. And you see when there's a juxtaposition in the caring, I'll call it, of the players in, in modern day sports, you see, I think, a lack of turnout and viewership of uh, people that will attend the game. I think the NBA regular season is a, a great example where we as consumers don't perceive the NBA stars as really caring about the regular season. And so you see viewership and attendance decline. The NFL preseason is another great example where it's very clear that the players don't, the star players at least don't care about playing in the regu- in the preseason. And so you see lower attendance, cheaper tickets, lower viewership. Whereas in this example, it's the, you know, the, 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 the pinnacle of like, caring and, and desire to care. It, there's a second part of this too that is just a takeaway for me. It's maybe how my brain's thinking, a takeaway or extrapolations into modern day sports. But I heard this recently, the idea that nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd. And it seems to me like once you start to compound the attention of this thing, and you already have what is probably a really entertaining live product. So the thing you're selling is solid. But once you get a crowd, people are going to be interested in it just by the very nature of there's other people watching. And I see that I, I could see that for somebody like you and I, Jake, like maybe I'm not inherently interested in the rodeo. I don't know much about it. I don't know much about the art form, but if I'm told that there's this institution of 50 years that exists in Texas called the Texas prison rodeo that consistently turns out tens of thousands of people watching, I'm interested just in the sheer, just for the sheer spectacle of it all. You know, I don't, I'm not interested because of the thing, but I'm interested because other people are interested and I want to find out why. Yeah, I think that's a, a a big chunk of the reason of why the Kentucky Derby is still a thing, right? And, totally. And gambling's a big piece of that one too, but um, I don't really watch horse races very often, but I watch the Kentucky right. Derby, and I know that all throughout college, Derby days was a big thing, and people would go out on the weekends, and they'd be, all be wearing like their, their Derby gear, and it, it's, it's like a cultural phenomenon that um, because it has been a part of culture in, in – um, Kentucky, I think, is where Churchill Downs is. Is like it's it's just a big part of everything in North America. Yeah, I mean, even the gambling part of that, I feel like, is just a way to avoid FOMO for a lot of people. Sure. You like maybe you're not even a sports better year round, but the one time it comes around, you want to, you just want to like feel like you know what's happening sure. as other people are also experiencing it. It's like this common, yeah, cultural event that you want to be a part of. So I think it has honestly a lot of great takeaways for how to build like successful modern day sports franchises. Yeah. It, it also certainly helps that the, uh, the overhead was really low. Um, they sure. didn't really have to pay their talent. A low labor cost, you could say. Yeah, one, one might uh, say that that would be helpful. Um, another thing I think to consider is the ethics of it. Um, and that, 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 that's kind of, it's, it's overlooked a little bit. Um, I think some people might be, uh, pushed away from it a little bit because they feel like, Okay, why are these like why why are you letting these prisoners there's two yeah. like there's three or four different ways to look at it, I think. Like it's one is like why are you letting them have fun? Um oh. the other way to look at it is um why are we taking advantage of them and having so them? It feels, do like, feels like a zoo in that sense. It's yeah, like a yeah. dance monkey dance. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And the third one is like, okay, um in this in this specific example, the prisoners were actually able to sit pretty much right next to all of the people that were not in prison. They had a fence between them, but like, if you look at the pictures, it's the prisoners, and then right next to them, it is all of the other people, all of like the the 10,000 or 15,000 other people 
that were there just to watch the spectacle and you could just have a conversation with one of them and people would people would like throw um throw coins at them or over to them as like a form of charity to throw cigarettes they throw all types of things over to them they never threw a gun god bless them but um they would do all those things and so like there's there's the inherent risk of something happening there too and so i, I don't know I, I think that's just something to think about and probably something they did think about as they were winding this thing down <laughs> certainly i i see you even outlined that there's some instances of prisoners trying to escape which successfully by the way can i go off on a tangent here go ahead i think the 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 greatest one i'll get to but the, there's there's some of them that worked on a farm that worked up in houston and so they'd have to drive down to do the actual rodeo itself and so um on the way back or on the way there they just jump out of the trucks and sometimes that that worked well but in the 40s, there were three three convicts that somehow got civilian clothes and they put them on underneath their white prison uniforms. And then they cut their way underneath the prisoner's fence at the arena. And so they made it outside the prisoner's fence, but they're trying to escape um, towards the, like the civilian's fence. And so they were climbing over and they got caught by a security guard there. And the guy asked them like, hey, like, what are you guys doing? And they told the security guard that they were trying to sneak in, but they couldn't because the security was so good. So they basically just like kissed up to this guy and and uh, thanking him for catching him. And they said, all right, we won't do it again. And the guard said to them, you know, you better be careful because uh, you almost ended up in prison instead of at the rodeo. Uh, you went a little bit too far there. And they all just chuckled. And he said, all right, well, just turn around and go back over the fence and, and don't come back here. And so the three of them just escaped. Um, <laughs> after they got caught by this guy. So it's just, it's just a great story of, uh, some, some old Texas prison rodeo escapees. It's just the best. It's one of those institutions in America that probably could never exist today, but sure. lives on in infamy in a way that, uh, I think my takeaway is that there are learnings that you could have just from like a, an entertainment industry perspective. But I think you outlined some good moral points there too, and probably many reasons why it couldn't happen today yeah also still very awesome um and i think that the my last note on it is there's like this weird factor that i think a lot of the best entertainment properties have and especially in combat sports it they have like this like i'll call it a sex appeal for lack of a better term but okay. when you go into it you you feel almost uncomfortable that you're there and because you're there and you feel uncomfortable you want to be there even more um sure. so so like there's there's like a a part of it that almost feels illegal to you that you're going into a prison and you're being surrounded by all of these prisoners and the prisoners are doing their rodeo and like it, maybe it feels kind of weird that they're behind bars and and you're not and maybe it feels weird that like maybe they are taking advantage of them or maybe it's actually just a really great thing for them to be a part of and they really love it and maybe it's not and um, all these people are just getting the crap beat out of them and you don't have to experience any of those things but it, like it gives you a taste of um, that world which I think is kind of interesting. Yeah, it's, it's an adrenaline rush and I think it's an appeal of the unknown and I'm sure at sure. the time people were not thinking through the moral quandaries that no. were going on as they're watching prisoners but I'm sure if they were thinking the same way you and I watch bare knuckle boxing or UFC is literally a guy could die or somebody could get a limb broken or they could get punched unconscious. And all of those things are 
acceptable to happen, but we have no idea what's going to happen. So we have to prepare ourselves for basically the worst possible outcome. And it's this idea that there is an unknown, but that's okay. And that's part of the appeal. And the unknown is what I think brings us back. Whereas in you know sports like football, there's a lot of violence, but we know predictably what the outcome is going to be. A team's going to score more points than another team. Whereas in combat sports, it's like so many things could happen that are within the realm of possibility. And I think that's just part of the excitement. Yeah, for sure. Uh, should we go on to the next section here? Yeah, we should. It's going to be a hard pivot to Kate, but we're going to have to do Sorry, it because Kate. we're bringing on Sorry, friend of the show. Yeah, Kate, not to associate you with uh, combat sports or, or prisons or, or rodeo. Yeah, Kate and I actually talked about none of that stuff. Uh, she's actually a content creator that blew up on TikTok earlier this year for running a mile for every run her favorite team, the New York Yankees, scored the night prior. But since then, she's actually developed into a really impressive content creator, or as she describes herself, Gen Z's MLB reporter. And Kate and I discuss her trajectory and how it shifted from wanting to work at a traditional network to working now as a creator, where she sees opportunities for young, aspiring, on-air talent, what she's learned about the growth of sports as a woman working in the industry, and so much more. I hope you all enjoy this interview with Kate. Kate, thank you for joining me today. Before we get into baseball and, and talking about the direction that's headed, because it's an area I want to get into, could you just give me and the audience a little bit of background about how you even ended up talking about baseball on the internet? I'll, I'll just start there, give you a blank canvas, and kind of let you let you cook. Yes, awesome. Well, thank you for having me first. And when I studied, when I was deciding to pick my major in college, I decided on journalism because in the beginning, I said, oh, I want to be a news journalist. Like, that's definitely what I want to do. Sure. And I did some internships with news stations and talked to a lot of sports professionals because I also knew that I wanted to work in sports. I did some sideline reporting in college. And I just, I really felt that the news industry was declining. And I saw there was a lot of opportunities in media companies that were mimicking the route to ultimately become on camera. And mm. Typically, that used to be you have to go to Indiana or Nebraska or South Dakota, the middle of nowhere, and work for a really small market. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to take a risk, and I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to see where it goes. So I accepted a position with the Yes Network. For those listening that don't know, it's the network that covers the New York Yankees. Yep. Accepted a position with the Yes Network, and I worked in probably like six different roles in two years just because it's such a small television network, although they put on a great show for the Yankees content is relatively smaller compared to MLB Network and ESPN, larger companies like that. So I got to do a lot. I was a graphics coordinator. I was a researcher. And ultimately, I knew that I wanted to be on camera. So I started my TikTok page while I was still working for Yes, just literally practicing. And Tyler, I'm sure you can attest to this, but like when you look at your videos from a year ago, you say, oh, wow, like my editing has gotten a lot better. My yeah. <laughs> storytelling's gotten better. For sure. Um, yeah. So I kind of took a little bit of a risk and I said, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to bet on myself. And after two years, I was talking to the producers and I said, you know, I really, I really want to be on air. And their response was, okay, I think you'd need to go to a smaller market and try and work your way up that way. And I said, well, I'm just going to, I'm actually just going to give social media a shot. And now it is a 70%, I would say is how I make my money, which is great. And I've built a, a great audience, but it's kind of like a full circle moment after you know, starting a page where I was just literally practicing being a reporter. So I would say questions that I would ask, you know, yeah. some of the players. And then I, I gained a following. So I was able to really go deeper in all aspects of baseball, which I'm very grateful for. Yeah, I I want to go back this a little bit, but 
I'm gonna pro- I'm gonna fr- I don't mean you to like speak ill on Yes Network, but I'm just gonna project some frustrations onto you that I might have in that position, which is like there are these people that exist in these hyper institutionalized roles that they really you know only seem to have some sort of following or only seem to have an audience because it's baked into the network that they work for or that audience is just kind of baked in through you know some legacy institution. Whereas somebody like you, um, I put myself in this category, have this ability that I think is a little bit more innate and I think a little bit more impressive to like grow an audience from scratch. Like I often think, and I'll talk about in the context of like local talk radio for whatever reason. And I'm curious to your thoughts on this too. Like I think it would be cool to have a local talk radio show. And a lot of that's probably hubris and ego and just wanting to like be on one of these traditional legacy channels that we both grew up listening to. Um, but then I look at these networks and I think like, okay, yeah, these guys are like talented at talking. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you were to put them all out on their own, make them start from zero and, and try to grow an audience that's the same size of the audience they have now, probably a lot harder for them to do it than it would for you or I, because they just don't have, you know, whatever skills that you want to consider you need to have to grow an audience online. And so I always find that kind of frustrating where it's like, I feel like I'm reaching more people. I feel like I'm doing more to grow a, a more dedicated audience. But just because these people have been slotted into these legacy institutions, somehow they're better than me, better, you know, more qualified, like whatever it is. So like, how do you, I guess the question, all of that, it's like, how do you rationalize that like desire that you probably had for a very long time to work in one of these hyper elevated institutionalized type roles to what you're doing now, which isn't less impressive or isn't like take less skill, but to a lot of people on the outside, it's probably like a step down. They might perceive like, how do you, how do you rationalize those two things? Like you wanted to work at the yes network. You wanted to do all these things. Now you're working at TikTok. Is that something you feel like is a step down or have, have you found a way to make that feel just as important? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a great question. Uh, in the beginning, I it was really hard for me to come to terms with. And a lot of people that I graduated with that also work in the television industry really said to me, like, what are you doing? Like, this is yeah. really risky. And I kind of looked at it as perspective is, OK, I'm 23 years old and I really can't make a decision right now that's going to change the course of my life completely. And any decisions that you make, I think, in your young mid-20s are supposed to be risky and they're supposed to be just about learning and growing. But yeah, from a big media standpoint, it was frustrating because there were people on the air at Yes and anywhere. And it's just it's hard for them to give younger people time in front of the camera because I think from their standpoint, it's like, well, if we all had to work our way through the trenches because there was no social media, because there were no other media platforms, then everyone else should do it as well. And my position on TikTok was that I want to reach a Gen Z audience. So like my bio on TikTok, it says Gen Z's MLB reporter. And it's because I'm not trying to reach 50, 60, 70 year old people that have been Yankee fans their entire life. I was, my aim was to grow the game of baseball for a younger audience. And I think I've done a pretty good job about it. But for the most part, it was very hard for me the first couple of months to kind of rationalize my brain that I left the Yes Network, which is a great thing to put on paper for something that I'm doing on my own. But when I really think about all the things I've learned from an editing standpoint, all the things I've learned just about every team in Major League Baseball, because there I was only covering the New York Yankees, I now realize that it was the best decision I could have made. Sure. How do you identify with that term reporter? I think it's an interesting thing to have in your bio. Like I would consider myself a content creator, and that's even a term that I get a little weird, you know, to call myself like influencer is totally off limits for me. Like I, it, I got to correct the record if anybody ever tries to introduce me that way. So how do I identify with that term? Is that something that you're trying to parlay back into what would be a traditional role? Or is that maybe are you trying to redefine the word? Like explain how you got to that uh, definition. 
Yeah. So it's actually it was actually an interesting story because the New York Post interviewed me. So to give some context, I gained 20,000 followers in a span of a few days because I was doing something called running for the New York Yankees. So people found this very intriguing, very engaging. And the Post reached out and they, they were asking me some questions and they called me a sports influencer. Mm. And I said, you know what? That's I don't really go by an influencer. I was saying, you know, a content creator and things like that. And because when you think of the term influencer, and this is no shade to the men and the women who do that, but I, I don't really think I'm influencing anyone to like buy certain products. That's really not my goal on social media. So I was trying to think of names and I was thinking about content creator. And I said, okay, my whole mission was to be a reporter for a younger audience. And as a reporter, I'm breaking down, analyzing Major League Baseball and bringing them daily news. But the reason I put Gen Z in front of it is because I'll give you an example, like as opposed to a traditional article that a reporter would write where they, you know, just break down the entire game, I will dress up as all the teams and portray it in a way that I think is more engaging, more entertaining. However, still using everything that went down in Major League Baseball during that weekend, but to convey it in a different way. So I almost wanted to make it more of a progressive, newer version of a traditional reporter. Sure. And you're also like... I, I see it a lot as you're, you're just like adapting to whatever the medium is, you know, like you could, yes. I'm sure your, your knowledge base is so that if you needed to, you could write a 600 page or 600 word article that would go through traditional channels or, you know, God forbid be put in a newspaper column, but that's not <laughs> the medium of the day. And so you have to adapt to what that medium is. And I, I think to our conversation, you know, just a bit ago about, you know, these like traditional talking heads at networks, I think their big struggle is adapting to that medium. Like if I had a nickel for every time I saw some guy that used to be on TV that thinks he could just like grab his phone and sit down and do like the same, you know, 24 minute piece in front of a camera for TikTok, like that's, that's just something that doesn't work. And I, I do feel like I, I, I see that a lot. Do you, do you Kate think that there's a time, you know, as, as you describe yourself as a Gen Z reporter, that your style of content or, you know, the style of content peers that you surround yourself with kind of works its way back up into the mainstream like do you see this now or do you hope it is a a path back up into these legacy networks or is that something that like is totally past you and, and it's not in your consideration set at this point i think absolutely in the future from just a standpoint i feel like people are neglecting to watch like the pregame shows the postgame shows it's definitely been on a decline for these larger networks and also, I mean, it's unfortunate because I still subscribe to The Athletic and The Times because I do believe in supporting journalism and reading the articles. But unfortunately, or you could say fortunately, if you want to think more progressive, that I don't think people's attention spans are going to read an entire article. So I can absolutely see in the future that along with the article, they will have someone like myself or like you or that, you know, does green screen and is showing what's going on, basically a synopsis of the article in a 60 second video. And it's something that, you know, people may say it's cheeky and it's 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 easy to do, but to break something down in 60 seconds, as I'm sure you can attest to, is is difficult to do. I, I mean, you yeah. need a really strong hook. You need to keep everything pretty condensed. And then you always have comments saying like, well, you missed this part. And I'm saying, like, well, I only have 60 seconds of your, of your time. Right. Yeah. So, but I, I can see, I mean, they've already started doing that with like the post. There are video um, articles along with it as well. So I can see this becoming more of a traditional role in the future. Do you find that you get pushback in the style of content that you make? Do you like, I guess the question is, you feel like people assign a value to it that is less than that of these traditional 
written or, you know, visual mediums? I think it's a mix. Like some people comment and say things along the lines of, wow, I can't wait till you have like your show on ESPN. And then there are other people that (laughs) say things like, this is the dumbest video I've ever watched. Sure. Yeah. Right. So it, 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 there is a mix of both on social media, but I feel like those that are in the industry right now maybe look down upon it. But then you see content creators with 500,000 plus followers getting to do crazy things that you don't get to do when you're 25, 26 years old, that these analysts that are on ESPN, on Yes, on MLB Network have had to wait 10 years in their career to even step foot at a World Series, to step foot at the All-Star Game. So it's it's very interesting, the power of social media. And I took it as an opportunity as opposed to something that's silly, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And I, I, I guess I usually prescribe a pessimistic view to things. That's kind of like my predisposition, unfortunately. But I, I think <laughs> there is, like, as, as you describe, it's a great way to cut the line. It's also, I think, an advantage. It's, it seems like right now we're in a very unique moment where a lot of these legacy companies aren't quite to the point that you're at the Kate where they, you know, there's like so digitally native that they can do everything that they want to do in house. So they have to reach out to people like you to, you know, kind of like suck up some of that creative talent um, to be able to do some of the things in house. Like, do you feel like you get a lot of, um, you know, I'll call it like downward uh, attention from these bigger networks now that you've grown a following that are like, Hey, I want to be a part of it. Cause and I'll, I'll speak from personal experience. One, and I feel like this has only happened to me in the last three months where I'll get reached out to by like any sort of like legacy organization. It could be like a sports league. It could be a team. It could be a, a media network. And they basically come to me and they're like, we love what you're doing. We want to work with you. I'm like, okay, great. Like awesome. And they go, okay, how do you think we should do this? And to, to me, it's like, it seems like they only want access to me because they want me to give them an idea or they want me to like, you know, copy paste the things that I do for myself for them. And they don't put a lot of thought into like, practically you know what the benefit would be or how they should maybe adapt to my style of content or like they don't dig a layer deeper than okay obviously what he's doing works or what you're doing works but why does it work and how can we adapt those learnings to what it is we do so wrapped up in all that do you feel like you get a lot of that kind of attention these days where these like now legacy organizations that maybe didn't look at you coming out of school are now looking and saying like she has something going on here we want to take advantage of it and what are those conversations like yeah i think it's very similar to what you said, I've had a lot of major companies reach out to me and say, well, we don't really understand your style. So whatever your style is, they said, well, I have a couple. Isn't that the worst? <laughs> it's the wor- I'm like, yeah. well, if you want to work with me, just at least give me some insight on what you would like me to do. Exactly. What's, what's really interesting, too, is when they come with ideas and I'm like, that's not going to work on social media. And mm-hmm. I feel like a part of them is almost insulted, but at the same time, I'm like, well, I, I can understand what's going to gain someone's attention. And that that you suggested is not going to gain the attention. There have been other companies, like I'll, I'll shout them out, um, Major League Cricket. I worked with them for a couple of videos and they were fantastic. They said, can you just do everything with the whiteboard? <laughs> so <laughs> I've always been the visual learner. So mm-hmm. that was kind of a way I started breaking down, you know, NFL terms, baseball terms was with a whiteboard so people could actually see what's going on. So I thought that was really interesting that they said, well, we just want you to use the whiteboard. And I appreciate that because it's that you like studied my content. But I think also a lot of these major networks, they it's a combination of them not understanding it. And also they st- they're still part of them that like looks down upon it. So they're like, yeah. well, we just want more views. So I guess you could just do that, which right. is tough. Yeah. I mean, like, how do you approach those relationships? Because then I like this will just turn to a, a creator therapy session. But I, <laughs> I feel like I get to the point where 
I get a little frustrated, admittedly, if somebody reaches out and they're like, we want to work with you. We don't know how. We just know we want to work with you. And then it feels like the onus is on me to like provide them the ideas. And I'm like, well, you're the one who reached out. So like, give me a starting point here. At the same time, I understand your frustration where they're like, we want you to do this exact thing. And I'm like, well, that's that's not going to work. You know, so it's like (laughs) there is, to be fair, and maybe I can be a a little difficult, but like there is some middle gray area where I don't want them to be too restrictive, but I don't want them to be so white blank paper where, you know, I'm like doing a lot of extra work to provide them ideas. How, how do you find that you work best with, with people in the context of like some of these, you know, more legacy brand partnerships or for you, is it different every time? Yeah, I would say I definitely enjoy a more collaborative response. Like I, very similar to what you said, I don't want a script of things that you want me to read because again, that's just not my style. I feel like it will come off as inauthentic so I, I never want to just like read off a script uh, I will say that I have a, like a long-term partnership with underdog which is a fantasy sports betting company and that is great because they we kind of just bounce ideas off each other and I feel like that's kind of the best way to do it like I'll come up with some ideas you say oh well what if we tweaked it a little bit as opposed to just a script or just coming in blank saying well here's a clean slate because you also have to think of it as which again I don't think they realize especially when you know money is involved like I know you want me to record the video and edit the video and post the video. And you also want me to come up with all different ideas. Now, like then the money issue starts because now I have to sit there brainstorming all of these different things and seeing what's going to stick. So that also is kind of challenging when like a, a brand will come out and set a rate for me with no explanation as to what they want. They're like, well, we just want you to to talk about our brand. I said, okay, well, <laughs> that's yeah. that's a little tough because now I have to brainstorm all and come up with all of these ideas. Yeah. That, I mean, that's been another very, uh, you just like keep unearthing pet peeves of mine. Like where <laughs> I'll, I'll get this, this is a very specific problem. So I apologize to those listening who don't have these problems. We'll move off it quickly, but <laughs> I'll get a, you know, I'll get an inbound request of, to do a video for, you know, let's call it $500. And they're like, could you do a video for us for $500? And it's like a, vid- a, a video in air quotes. Of what? Like, like of what, you know, like, you know, do you want it to be in the style of video that I make? Or do you want it to be like a green screen video? Like not that those have different levels of value but they certainly have different levels of work and you know our, our, our time is worth something so there's a lot of i i, I think I, I find myself growing frustrated with like the level of white space it feels like is given to creators and is looked at as a benefit for creators but you know as you describe like there's a lot of time that then has to go into ideating around those concepts which um, shouldn't go overlooked and it's not just like a i feel like a lot of people assume it to be plug and play and it's really uh if you want it done well i don't think it is yes Yes, absolutely. And that's also why I think you and I lean more towards the creator side, because again, this is no knock to any influencers out there, but there are people that will pay influencers to like use a trending sound and just stand in the video, which is why I never say like I'm an influencer, because that's just not something that someone would pay me to do. They'd pay me to like edit a video or talk about something or go to an event or interview someone, which takes a lot more time and it's something, again, that people just like don't take into consideration. Like I was working with a brand and, you know, it was two hours away and I said, oh, is travel included? And they're like, oh, I didn't even think of that. Well, I'm like, well, I'm driving two hours right. to go to this event. So it is, it's, it's, I love it. I love doing it. I, I think it's great to, you know, build a page and work for yourself, but it, it's definitely a lot of work that people don't, I, I will say it's a lot of work that people overlook frequently. Sure. I, I think that's a good way to put it. Um, yeah. Okay. Let, let's move off this. Cause I'm sure there's a lot of people listening. They're like, I don't create content on TikTok. So why the hell would I care? But Kate and I, you might, you know, I might just have to like, you know, hop on a call and we can just rant to each other. Cause that was, <laughs> uh, that was, that was therapeutic in a sense. I, I want to talk a little bit about baseball now. Um, 
I would say baseball growing up to play one of my favorite sports as a media product is probably not even top three of my favorite sports. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a dissonance that exists with a lot of people. Um, with the recent rule changes, I, I find my I found myself more interested in the in-person uh, product of, of going to a game. Even the TV product is, is obviously a lot better, in my opinion, based on um, the pace of play changes. I, I want to get your thoughts. I think it's great that we kind of set the stage as you as a Gen Z reporter. And now we can apply that definition to one of America's most archaic and aging sport. So can you like draw that connection for me and, and how you see your role as somebody who's speaking to a younger audience? Um, your videos are really, how would you describe your videos in a way that's not reductive? Because they're obviously really elementary in some of the, and I'm not even elementary, I'm, everything I say here is going to be really reductive, but they're really like beginner focused, um, but in a really good way and in a way that can help bring more people into the game. And that seems like your goal. Um, how, how do you think about yourself as this like Gen Z reporter that exists in a game that has one of the most aging demographics. Yeah, absolutely. So the thing that really set me off last year was the fact that the World Series ratings were nowhere close to NFL ratings. So it was, I I believe it was like week three of the NFL and people would rather watch that than watch the World Series, which was mind boggling to me. And now that I've gotten a little bit more into football, I can understand why. But it was very frustrating. So I said, okay, like there needs to be a bridge. There needs to be a bridge from people that love the game of baseball that are, you know, 60, 70 years old. And then people that have grown up that haven't really been watching it because it's deemed as the boring sport. I think they've done a great job with all of the pace of play changes and the pitch clock and the fact that runners, the bases are bigger, runners can steal more bags. It just makes the game more entertaining. So a lot of those changes have already We've seen an increase in stadiums. We've seen an increase in viewer in viewership, which has been great. But my whole thing was that I wanted to explain baseball in a way that basically someone who has never even watched a game could understand. And it is really funny when people will comment things like, well, I already knew that. I'm like, well, it's not aimed at you. <laughs> like, <laughs> clearly. Yeah. So very similar to like the football videos too, like football for first timers. I have a segment, baseball for baddies. Like, I'm just trying to explain it into a way that basically an elementary school, like as you said, couldn't understand. And I think that's been a good side with content that I I believe makes me more well-versed in the game and more knowledgeable, but I wanted to pair that with something else. That way I could just reach a a larger audience. And I looked at my demographic in the beginning and I said, well, it's 90% male and 10% female. Okay. How can we reach the female target audience? Okay. I'm going to explain baseball to them in a way that they find it intriguing and interesting. So I'm I'm going to pretend I'm a teacher and I'm just going to teach them how to play baseball. And a lot of people said, oh, wow, I really I really enjoy these series. It's always the best when you also get the people that do watch baseball that are like, oh, I watched this whole thing. I'm like, oh, good. That means I am doing my job. Yeah. So it's it's been interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think it's great. Um, it's something that I've thought a lot about, like bringing new people into sports. I think my first thought, like, Again, my pessimistic my pessimistic hat is on, but my, my first thought is like, how many of these people really exist? And I think I just assume like sports are really strided at this point where if you're a fan of a sport, you're in it. If you're not a fan of a sport, you're never going to be a fan of a sport. H- how, like what reasoning do you hear, you know, whether it be in comments or direct outreach from people that they're interested in your videos? Is it really that there's like such a high barrier to entry? And, and maybe that's true for baseball. You know, I grew up like enjoying these sports. So 
these little nuances maybe just you know stacked up over time um like what reasoning do you do you get from people that they enjoy watching your videos because again in my pessimistic mind i always just figured if you're not interested in it you're just never going to be interested in it but but clearly that's not true that's like a that's probably one of the reasons baseball isn't growing so like yeah. what are you hearing from people yeah so i do try in like more advanced videos i'll try to say things like this is a historic player so a player like shohei otani is a historic player so if you're not watching baseball I'll joke with my audience and say things like, do you want to be 75 years old and think that you missed the greatest player ever in Major League Baseball because you just didn't really care to understand it? I also try and make it just more fun because I feel like, again, that is targeted because this is very, you know, stereotypical, largely at women. But it's that, oh, it's boring. It's too confusing. Or especially football, like the the football ones that I've done have really blown up. But the baseball ones in the beginning, people were commenting like, oh my gosh, like, I feel like my boyfriend never even explained it to me like this or my dad never even explained it to me like this. And I think the reason that they're interested, they weren't interested in watching in the beginning was because they just truly didn't understand the game. And it's what's frustrating is that a game like baseball is actually very simple. So that was something that I've like, okay, you didn't understand it. Let me just explain it. It's a very simple game. But I think now it's actually helped a lot of people get more into the sport with adding like storylines now and things that they should be following as well as just like the basics. Yeah. I'm about to <laughs> wade into some uncomfortable territory for me. Just talking about like this dynamic of like men versus women being interested in sports. Yeah. Um, so stick with me is, is my, is my preface here. What do, <laughs> what do you, what do you think is the reason that as you described, like predominantly women are now kind of coming into these videos and getting an understanding. Is it because Let's talk baseball specifically. Like the sport is just not doing a good job uh, communicating to women specifically. Or what does that even look like to quote unquote communicate to women specifically? Because I, in that comment, I feel like there is like a reductionist attitude of like you need to talk down or just talk differently to women about a sport because for whatever reason, they would never be able to understand it. But that's not the case. So how do you feel like baseball is doing a bad job, I suppose, at bringing in women? And what do you think your videos are doing to address that? I think it really just comes down to like growing up and a lot of women are just from a young age aren't taught to be like watching a bunch of sports. It was funny like I one of the shows that I'm on they were talking about players from like 2005 and to be frank I I wasn't a fan of baseball when I was six years old so but when you're young when you're like a young boy that's like kind of how you're conditioned to you're supposed to like you know watch baseball watch football and that's just not something that happens and I think especially on TikTok, there is, I know you're supposed to be 18, but there is a very young audience, as you could see, they're like 14, 15, 16 years old. So my biggest thing was if I can reach like the girls on TikTok now, the 14, 15, 16 year olds, then they'll have a great understanding in high school and an even better understanding in college. So that was my entire thing as well is like, how can I almost teach people about baseball at a very young age? And I don't know if MLB is necessarily doing anything bad or like lacking in that department. I think they've done a great job with like their creator class and like trying to get people a little bit more engaged so that they can come on TikTok, come on social media and showcase that. But I just wanted to be a woman on social media that was talking about baseball and kind of like showing people like this is normal, this is okay, this is fun. It's yeah. it's not something that, you know, if you misspeak, a, a guy's gonna be like, well, you're an idiot. So sure. that was kind of my whole mindset behind it. Yeah, what was your relationship with sports and baseball growing up like was that something that you just had an innate connection to or were you kind of brought in in a similar way that you, know, you feel like you're bringing other people in 
Yeah, well, I actually played softball growing up, so I just always loved the game. And my dad played college baseball, so I was always an avid Yankee fan, but nowhere close to how I cover it now. So that more came when I started working in the industry at Yes, because you have to know a lot about baseball when you're working for a network. Um, And it's tough because I always say, like, I wish I watched it more when I was in high school and college. So that's kind of what I'm aiming to do right now. Yeah, I feel like a lot of what you do, Kate, and it's, you know, fantastic content is bringing people up to speed. If you look going forward, like, let's say that we get to a point where now everybody's equal and we all know as much as we want to know about (laughs) baseball and we don't have to do any more explaining to anybody. What do you think the MLB or just sports leagues in general can do going forward to continue to bring or keep more people in in the fray? Yeah, I think that I believe their their page is Bat Boys Baseball, I believe. But yeah. they've done a great job of being on the field and like interviewing athletes. And I think that's bringing a whole new audience to baseball because we didn't see a lot of that with the fo- with football last year. We certainly did not see a lot of that with the NBA. So I think, you know, having more fun conversations with the players gets people more intrigued to actually watch. And I, I think what they're doing is great. I think MLB, uh, the Mets have been doing a great job with like asking their players, what's your favorite Taylor Swift song? It just it's it's something that can help relate to the younger audience and actually give someone an incentive to watch this team play. Like, oh my gosh, like, did you know Pete Alonso's favorite Taylor Swift song is Bad Blood? Like, that's my favorite Taylor Swift song. Stuff like that. I think humanizing the athletes that is huge, especially in a game like baseball that compared to football and basketball is is doing worse. Yeah. Do you think that there's like a messaging though, or like a certain initiatives that need to be undertaken for a specific segment. So I won't even just try it at between men and women. I'll say younger audiences and older audiences, or maybe audiences in different parts of the country that like you need to talk to them in a different way, or you need to like relay the game to them in a different way. So a, a good example is like uh, a lot of these leagues now have it is like a, a page that basically like highlights the fashion of their player. So maybe if you're not into sports specifically, but you're really into streetwear, you're really into footwear or you're just, you know, really into fashion in general, that's an interesting entry point for you to get in the league. And, you know, they're making these sort of like subcultures within the league. Do you, do you think that there needs to be something like that just for various, you know, demographics? And I, I guess the reason I ask is because it, it feels like on TikTok specifically, a lot of the, a lot of the d- discourse will be distilled down into like, oh, women just don't understand baseball or they just don't care about baseball or they just don't want to care about baseball. And I don't think that's true for everybody, obviously, but maybe for some people, they really don't care about who's leading in the AL East. You know what I mean? Men, women, young, old, they they just don't care. And they care more about the specific storylines or the, the humanized aspect of it. So c- could you just speak a little bit to like how you think the league or b- multiple leagues have to serve these different demographics or how they could best do that? Yeah, I think even the point that you just mentioned would be great. I I. Th- thought back to when I worked at Yes, they would have a pregame show from 6.30 to 7 right before the show, and that would be probably targeted towards the older audience. But then from 6 to 6.30, they had this thing called a BP show, which it was very similar to the pregame show. But now that you just brought that up, I feel like if they change that segment to more fun things that have just been happening with the Yankees that really have nothing to do with baseball, like, oh, did you know this fun fact about Anthony Volpe? Or did you know this fun fact about Harrison Bader? And you know, this was a really cool outfit that Judge was wearing, or he, oh, I remember the time he brought his dog to the stadium. If they did that for the first 30 minutes and kind of changed it more geared towards the younger audience, I think that would be great. And I think they could, they could do that pretty much anywhere, ESPN, MLB Network, and almost like 
before the actual start of the game, they could do that. And they could also do a segment like on social media as well. Like, oh, this is our like, you know, young segment. And they just do fun, humanizing things. And then they can also add in the more serious, traditional analyzing and stuff like that. Sure. How how do you, I'm curious now, like, as you relate to this content personally that you make, um, obviously a lot of it to you is like, you know, as you're explaining it, you're the teacher, you're, you're teaching presumed students. So there's like a, you know, there's a level of, maybe breakdown or there's a level of like content that maybe you feel like you don't get to make, you know, like you feel like maybe your content has to be super basic and maybe there's a a scratch that you have yet to itch in terms of like wanting to create a different kind of content. Um, Do you ever feel like you want to get out of this, you know, lane of, you know, six, like a successful series that you found yourself in? Do you, do you ever feel like you're, you feel at odds with this persona you've built online where you're like, oh, I'm the person that explains things in a really basic way, but really I know so much more. Like, it, is that something that you struggle with or do you have enough outlets and ways to create content that you feel like you can scratch all those itches? Yeah, I mean, one of our one of the podcasts that I host, we get to interview athletes and break down Major League Baseball a little bit more. So that is great. But I, you know what's frustrating is, and again, it's just like a common content creator thing, but I would love to just like sit there and just rant or like actually analyze a bunch of things about baseball. The problem is like when I was doing that initially, it, it just wasn't getting as as many views as things that when I'm basically under like breaking down it in very basic, simple terms. So it is tough. Like I think eventually I would like to be more known for, oh, she like really basically like, excuse my language, like she really knows her shit. You know what I mean? So things like that. But so I try and sprinkle them in as well. But for the most part, I think I have enough outlets that I can ultimately get it done. Yeah. And, and yeah, like I totally sympathize with that. I think I think a lot about my ability to compete in an audience of one versus some sort of much, you know, a much more crowded audience in which I feel like I'm competing on ideas or I'm competing on the best hook or the best editing. Yes. Like it, it gets very noisy. And I always make the joke. There's not a shortage of white guys who sit in front of a microphone and talk about sports, right? So how can I differentiate myself to the extent that when I post a video, I'm not competing against that whole group of guys. I'm now just existing and people care so much about what I have to say or find so much value in what I have to say that they come to me. Um, and, and I've been thinking about that a lot too. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it. Like in terms of how I exist as a creator, like how it exists in my life, like between a work-life balance, because I don't want to feel like I have to cover this trending topic as soon as it happens because I have to be first to it I want to feel like and I I'm not even existing in that race like I'm just going to get to it when I get to it and when I do get to it people are going to find value in it because I'm the one talking about it do you how do you relate to what I just said that's a horrible way to ask a question but maybe you find a piece of yourself in that no I I completely agree and for a while I'm sure because I you know you get these things in your head and you're like well you know, all I'm really doing is just explaining the sport. And then, you know, all of the doubts start to come in. I'm like, oh, am I actually actually good at making content? Or is this just going viral just because it's going viral? But I was it was funny. I was on live last night and I had all these people like just asking me questions like, what do you think about the Mariners this season? What do you think about the Brewers? And I was just answering them. and I kind of got off after and I said, oh, like people actually like care what I actually think about what's going on. So that did help you know, the ego a little bit, I guess you could say, sure. <laughs> for lack of better terms. Yeah. But it's it's tough when you're like pigeoned into a certain hole. Like even when I was doing the running series that was going viral, you know, people were commenting, are you the running girl? I'm like, well, that's just not what I, that's not what I'm aiming to be. I'm going to be the running girl on TikTok. 
um especially like when the outlets are reaching out to me they're like well do you even work have you ever worked in sports i'm like no yes i i work for the <laughs> yes network like, yeah i i did work in sports like as at a, at a very reputable company but so it, it is tough because then the thing about TikTok and really any social media is you get kind of pigeonholed into a certain series or a certain or a certain aspect of it. But I'm hoping long term, I always said that like my goal was to be on TikTok like that. The female on TikTok people would go to for baseball content would be my page. So that was sure. That's always been the goal. I think we're getting a little bit closer there right now, but that's always been like the end all be all. Yeah, I. I it's a good jumping off point into like, do you feel like to that point of being pigeonholed that there is some part of that where you feel cornered because you are a woman talking about sports? Like, do you feel like there's a, I wouldn't even say tokenist aspect because I know how the internet works. It's almost a knock against you rather than it is like a benefit for you. So like, how do you square that identity with, um, you know, you're, you're, you're a girl that talks about sports on TikTok. I'm sure you get a lot of flack for it, or you, you probably just like, it's probably just a lot of out of pocket things that get said. Um, do you feel like that's a core part of your identity or you're trying to move away from that? Like, how do you, how do you think about that as a woman creating content online about sports? Yeah. I tr I always, I never like want to be like a play a victim card or like say anything like that. Um, I, the one trend I've definitely noticed is cause there's always going to be stupid misogynistic comments, but you really just mm -hmm. have to say like, I, I mean, it's 2023. Like, are you serious with this? But what I have noticed is if you ever like make a mistake or, misspeak it's it's almost like someone's like waiting for you to say something wrong yeah, yeah. that then they want to like jump in the comment section and and things like that but for the most part people on my page have been really supportive and i will say on this other show that i do those comments have gotten like i've like really gotten to me at, mm -hmm. at times just because i have noticed that like the two guys that i do the show with like they say really dumb things on the show and nobody's not not so much as dumb but they have very interesting takes Sure. And people aren't as quick to come for their takes as they, they are for mine, which yeah. could just be that they, they just don't like me or it, it could be a gender thing. But that's the only thing that I have noticed about creating content. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting. Um, it's almost like there's like a, a flow chart that people go through. And uh, being a woman is probably near the top of that uh, flow chart and is one that, you know, for me, like it, I just skip down to, I don't know, whatever people say about me. Just being dumb. But yeah, I certainly see that. Do you, is your demographic, you, you talked earlier about how your demographic was mostly men. Has that now shifted? Is it like predominantly female or how does that, how has that moved in the past two years? Yeah, no. So it's, it's moved a lot. So, which is kind of crazy. Um, now it's, I would say like 60, 40, 60 male, 40 female, which is great because th there was a moment it was like 92% male. And I said, okay, we really need to adjust to female audience. <laughs> so <laughs> that it's definitely gotten better um, from that sense, which is is great. That's that's kind of been the goal. Yeah. What was your like, you know, when you realized that, was there a concerted effort you made to make more of a certain style of content? Or was it like, how, how did you think about moving in that direction? Because, you know, one thing about organic social is for as much as the algorithm's great, you can't decide who sees it. So how did you, yeah. you know, how did, how did you play puppet master? Yeah. So I... It was funny. Like I said, okay, well, here's like one really easy way I can get the girls. Like, this is what you should wear to a baseball game. That's really only going to target one demographic. So that's what I started doing when I realized I had to actually had to get more in onto the female audience. I literally addressed the video for girls, and it worked. And the guys still liked it and commented on it, but it was clearly more targeted at the girls. And I think that's kind of how I gained more of a following from a female demographic. 
Wow, that's super interesting. Awesome. Yeah. Well, so the baseball season is going to be over here. Uh, what, what are you going to do with yourself once you know once it ends? Obviously, you're, you're making a push into uh, football. I really like the, the cricket stuff that you've been doing. Are you just trying to sort of diversify your you know to the point of pigeonholing yourself? You're just trying to diversify your your sports uh, your sports space. Yes, absolutely. Because so I've had this page for a little over a year. And I've noticed last year I did great during baseball season. Like the views were up. Everything was great. And the second the season ended, I was still trying to post about baseball. So I was covering all the offseason drama and stuff like that. And it was getting no views. I don't know what TikTok was like. Nope, baseball's over. Your content's not coming anywhere (laughs) near here. Um, So that's kind of why I did like a preview to football stuff. So I do want to get a little bit more into football. Love the cricket stuff. Um, Definitely, definitely need to like study up on cricket though, because there are some areas that I need to understand and learn more. It's a very complicated sport, but cricket's just very entertaining and it's really engaging. And I also think it's great to just get like a different, um, like a different country involved in your, in your fan base, which is great because I posted like one cricket video and I got a bunch of people from India, which was so cool. So I'm like, oh my gosh, people from India on my page is great. (laughs) And then they'll, they'll comment things like, oh, like. American football. This is so interesting. I didn't even know about American football. Oh, wow. Here we go. Okay. You're just a psyop for American football at the end of the day. <laughs> I think is what happened. I was like, I hope I'm just not known for it. It's like the girl that just explains every sport to everyone. This is going to be my job. I just Start explain sports. <laughs> but yeah, so it, I definitely trying to, I'm going to tap a little bit more into football. Um, I have a lot of things I have to get done before the baseball season ends with brands and stuff like that. Uh, but then, then I'm going to wrap it up and start going in the NFL. Awesome. Well, thank you, Kate. Could, could you shout out where people could go um, listen to some of your other shows? Obviously, you're on TikTok at Ask Kate, but where else can they find you? Sure. Uh, the Hot Corner Show on social media and Breaking Bats Pod. That's where we interview athletes. Awesome. Well, thank you, Kate, so much. Look forward to the your stuff the rest of this baseball season. And then I look forward to you being the biggest American cricket influencer after that. <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Tyler. I appreciate it. Okay, Jake, we're back. And as we head into the fall, I wanted to give ourselves the opportunity to look back on the summer and call out some winners and losers. And I want to do this specifically because I feel like as sports fans, we often reflect on the months of June through August as a relative dead period in sports. But this year, it felt like a lot happened. And so I wanted to give you first, Jake, the opportunity to give me some of your biggest winners and losers from let's call it the past three months. For sure. Uh, One final quick plug for the the Texas prison rodeo. I was just thinking about this. So <laughs> interesting thing on the, of them on like the, um, on like the human rights side of things. So for the longest time, uh, the entirety of the South was segregated and that didn't really change until the fifties and sixties of the civil rights movement and the, the removal of all the Jim Crow laws that were happening on there. One of the first and, and honestly, probably one of the only areas in which things were desegregated was the Texas prison rodeo. The prisons were still segregated, but for whatever reason, the, the rodeo was, was, uh, was, was desegregated and everybody was wow. just doing it together. So to, fun fact, um, just want to throw that out there. My winner, uh, for this year, the Texas prison rodeo was a long time ago. I would have given them the winner award, but my winner for this year has got to be Dave Portnoy. Um, mm. pretty, pretty big headline here that he was able to, to buy bar back for a dollar. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd take that deal, um, any day of the week and twice on Sunday. And I'm a little upset that Penn didn't give us a call cause I would have given him at least $2 for that. Um, <laughs> sure. at least, 
And so there, there's definitely factors at play as to why that happened. And, and Penn was going into an agreement with ESPN and the, the quickest way for them to get out of their non-compete clauses with Barstool was to just sell the company back to Dave for um, literally 100 pennies. Um, not pennies on the dollar, literally 100 pennies. And, and so I, I'm going to give him the big winner of the, of the summer award because he already had a huge payday on this thing, and now he's getting the asset back. Multiple times over. Like, he literally sold this thing 14 different ways in, in part to, you know, first to churning group and then got it back and then partly sold to Penn and then fully sold to Penn and then got it all the way back. So as he's cashing out in different valuation periods, he's getting it all back, keeping that money, and then getting it back for a dollar. Yeah. Honestly, like short-term at least, one of the more savvy business moves. Yeah, I agree. There's, there's a song called Cash In, Cash Out that, that we should play that over the top of that. I don't think we will, but uh, Pharrell Williams, great song, um, makes a lot of sense here within the context of Barstool Sports and Dave Portnoy. That would be my winner of the summer. Loser of the summer, Pac-12, holy cow. Mm. Imagine waking up and half of your conference members have just disappeared, and then Imagine waking up the next day and the like another half of them from that initial half also disappeared. They're down to four schools now at this point, and it's not looking good for them. And I think I think the the bad summer is going to become much much worse. I I mean it already has continued now into the in the season, and I think the Pac-12 will exist now as a punching bag in their effectively last it's, season it's as a college yeah, football conference. Over. It is done. They're they're dead men walking. I think it's especially funny as people point out, it's sort of like this postmortem that people are now doing like, oh, this is why the Pac-12 went away. But for example, this last week of college football, USC was playing. They're ranked number six in the country. Caleb Williams, a Heisman favorite, projected to go first overall. And literally nobody in the country can watch them play because the Pac-12 network is not carried anywhere on linear TV except for Fubo and Tubi, which are two relatively obscure um, cable providers, and so also, as people things ran with Scooby Dooby Doo, so Scooby Doo, right? <laughs> Maybe they just went for the comedy factor. Yeah. But, I mean, but as people get to watch random schools like UMass and Navy play on, you know, somewhere on ESPN, literally one of the best teams of the day that was playing can't be watched by anybody. And sure. I think it's it's going to act as this cherry on the cake of oh, this is why the Pac-12 went defunct, like just could not get out of their own way in, in so many different ways. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's also the inverse of that, <clears throat> that like mob factor you were talking about earlier too, right? Like the the best way to grow a, car- a crowd is to have a crowd. And the best way to lose a member of your um, collegiate athletic conference is to lose half of your members. So there's just this sure. domino effect that happens. And as more people go away, like the, the, the reasons to stay within the Pac-12 um, become fewer and fewer, and the reasons to leave become very strong. Sure. So I'll I'll give you now my biggest winners and losers. I think American soccer has had one of the biggest last three months that any sport has had in history, or at least in the last century. Yeah. And this was happening, I, I think now, when history tells the story of MLS specifically, they'll look at this move of Messi to come to Inter-Miami as the big tipping point. And I think that's true. I also think it's worth note- noting that MLS wasn't doing badly before Messi got here. It was, there There was like popular consensus that MLS was already about to overtake, if not had already overtaken the NHL as the fourth major sport in America. Everybody could see the direct- trajectory soccer was on across the world and specifically here in the States. And money was already flooding into the sport. The most recent 
expansion franchise had sold for something close to $500 million. So it wasn't like the league was this unknown league that then blew up because Messi came here. What I will say is that what Messi did was bring the league into the mainstream. When you look at these sort of cultural barometers that tell you where the popular attention is specifically in sports, I like to look at accounts like ESPN or SportsCenter or Bleacher Report. I think they're the most mainline types of accounts. I think they get a lot of flack a lot of times because they only cover the biggest brands and the biggest athletes in the country. But I do think it's a great way for people like us, Jake, to get a sense of, okay, this is kind of what people are talking about. Like people still care about LeBron James. People still care about the New York Yankees. Like you get you get a sense of, of where the public uh, perception is or where the attention is at least. And if you look over the last three months, their coverage, those two outlets specifically of the MLS has been similar to the NFL playoffs. I mean, yeah. their coverage probably dwarfs that of the FIBA World Cup, of the NHL offseason, of the MLB regular season. Like the MLS coverage has been second to probably only the NFL. And I don't think we could have said that a year ago before Messi got here. You know, I, I like to kind of call it there was a kindling happening or burning in the MLS before, and then Messi was the lighter fluid that just got dumped on and exploded this whole thing. Uh, you look at Inter Miami's value increasing from $56 million to now an estimated $600 million. According to Forbes, you have sold out crowds, tickets going for thousands, a reported 100 million new Apple TV subscribers, and Messi just has taken the league to an entirely new level. And I don't think there's any going back, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, Jake, but Did it seems like- A million or a million Apple TVs? A million new Apple TV okay, subscribers. I thought you said a million. I was like, wow. I might have, and that's worth correcting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, one final point on this, Jake, and I want to get your thoughts, because- it feels like the MLS had done a really good job at building sort of in a brick by brick fashion. But again, I don't want to like dock them too much credit because I think they were a pretty powerful sporting institution before Messi, but they had a really solid product. You know, it seemed like it's fun to go to a game. Uh, it seems like the Apple TV. Yeah, it seems like the Apple TV experience is pretty solid. You know, like they don't have linear distribution, but Apple TV is a pretty customary streaming service these days for people to watch. And so when like they built up this really solid foundation and now Messi pours all this attention over it. They can now just build on top of that attention. So people going to a game that might not have otherwise gone to a game before that are now going because of Messi are going to have a good experience because the MLS has invested in there being a good experience. And when people go to watch the MLS, it's not like the Pac-12 network where they're going to have trouble finding it. They know where to go and they have a really easy sign-up flow and they enjoy the viewing experience. And so all this new attention that Messi has brought in is just an exclamation point on the foundation that the MLS had laid 20 years prior to him joining. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, they they are filling a gap in that dead time of of, of summer. And then to, to your point on like the ESPNs of the world, Bleacher Reports of the world, covering soccer more so than they ever have, like the those those sports properties, those brands are agnostic to which sport they're they're covering. They want to cover whatever sport is going to be most relevant to the most amount of people at any given point in time. And and for the last eight weeks, it's been soccer, primarily driven through um, what Messi has done for the North American game. And I think the timing of him coming over was impeccable. Um, it, we do go into kind of a, a debtor time between July and August. Baseball has been going on for a few months already. And so people are um, they've already gone to a handful of games of people that really love baseball. And so um, they're fatigued a little bit there and uh, people haven't really gotten back to school yet. So there's still a lot of time left in summer. And so it timing up when it did made a lot of sense. It was great for soccer. And I think soccer is 
absolutely number four and potentially could become number three at some point here too. Like it, it's, it's a truly global sport. Um, and yeah. it's the, the barriers to entry to play when kids are little are really low. Um, unlike hockey, which is a very expensive sport to play and you can play it pretty much anywhere. And most kids do. Yeah. And, and now the sport that soccer in America will be duking it out against will be baseball. And it'll right. be interesting to see because that will be, that that's going to be a direct, you know, supplantation of the season, the baseball season in the summer, the soccer season is in the summer kind of. or it seems like it. It's, I still don't like, really know the full MLS like, season, but like 10 months long, but, but yes, right. Primarily it, it's happening in the summer. And so it'll be interesting to see if there's like a mass exodus of attention into soccer as a direct replacement for baseball. We have yet to see, but I think MLS specifically had a really great last three months in terms of my loser. I'm going to dub it as institutional media. And I'm going to explain this from a couple different standpoints. So we obviously saw huge, huge layoffs at ESPN. We saw the divestment of Barstool Sports by Penn. I think under Penn, Barstool was more of a legacy media player than it really wanted to be. Mm-hmm. And that was part of the reason there was such a, a, a mismatch. Um, and at the same time, I'll speak now as a creator, I'm seeing and hearing about this massive deal flow from similar types of advertisers that advertise on ESPN and on Barstool that the money is now flowing down to the little guys like me. So where you have all these gambling sponsorships, you know, ticketing sponsorships, you have like apps for any number of sports gambling insight or you know, ticket marketplaces, like any of these ads that you see plastered across ESPN, the the budgets for marketing are now being more and more spread out among smaller creators. And so I'll kind of give you a breakdown, Jake and everybody about uh, how I perceive what's happening. So basically brands for years have had to pay ESPN $10 million if they want to get 10 million views on sports programming, right? Like those were the traditional channels that you could get mass distribution in front of a sports audience. But now you could realistically pay a thousand short form creators a combined $1 million instead of $10 million and have the same chance of reaching the same number of people, if not even more. So these short form content platforms, specifically TikTok, have democratized the ability for anybody to reach any number of people. So ESPN no longer holds a monopoly over, hey, you want to reach 10 million sports fans every single day? You have to advertise through us because there's thousands of creators that are reaching probably even more sports fans on TikTok that advertisers can now work through. So they don't have to put all of their eggs in one basket. They can spread out their risk across multiple creators and pay even less money than they were before. And so I think that's a good thing for creators. I think there's sort of a, again, a democratization of content and of a spend, you know, ad spend across the marketplace. But I do fear that there's a bit of a race to the bottom. So my loser here is twofold. Obviously, institutional media sees some sort of pullback in funding um, and revenue. But I think it could also be a potential loser for content creators, you know, call them my size that are in this like working class of content creators, you know, 100,000 people. They make a couple thousand dollars a month where... Are you laughing or you thinking I'm not one of the people, Jake? No, I'm laughing at the term, the middle class of content creators. That was just... Well, I mean, that's... I mean, certainly... The working class. You, no, the working class. The working class. Yeah, well, I, I, think that's, I think that's the thing. It I, is. I heard it, it described on a... It is. A, a Colin and Samir episode where you have... You, you obviously have like these career creators who can make billions of dollars being For sure. a creator. For sure. And I think you have... You even have middle class creators now who yep. can make a living. Maybe they're not, they're not making millions, but they're making six figures as Absolutely. solely a creator. And then you have working class creators, which... Like I, I would put myself in that category where I still have a job, yeah, right. But I still make money as a creator, but it's maybe not enough money to like fully, or maybe it's not as consistent to fully sustain a life only creating. Sure, you know what I mean. Yeah. And I think a large part of that is being driven by 
the ad spend being spread out across more and more creators, which has created this race to the bottom for what a creator can make. And so my worry is now as a creator, I'm only getting offered, you know, a deal for $500 a video and how many $500 videos would I have to make to sustain a career in a single year as a creator, like too many to probably make it worth it. Right. And so, whereas before you could get cut checks of hundreds of thousands of dollars for year long agreements, these brands realize that they don't want to put all their eggs in one basket. They don't want to do it with institutional media. They don't want to do it with big creators. And they know that they can get, they have the same chance of reaching, of going viral with a bunch of small creators as they do with one big creator. And so they're going to spend 100, 200, 300 bucks on a video with a creator that only has a thousand followers. And they might even stop reaching out to the 10 million follower creators in general, just because they want to divest a little bit uh, in that attention. And well, I understand why they're doing it, but yeah, it's, it's a little concerning. It's, it's not necessarily a divestment. It's, it's more so a um, an effectiveness play, right? Like like as as platforms become more merit-based, and TikTok is like 100% merit-based, as they become more yeah. merit-based, like why why would they invest into a big brand that's going to charge them a lot when they, they, they know that there's a content creator like yourself. Like you, you probably, your content probably performs better than a lot of like traditional media brands content um, because it's built for the platform and people enjoy engaging with your style of content. Um, and they just, they just know that it's going to get in front of more people. It's going to convert more people into users for whatever their product is or whatever their service is. And they don't have to worry about um, all of the red tape involved with working with a, a gigantic company. I also have the same concern that you do though. Like, it, it is it's a race to the bottom between creators and there's 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 obviously different echelons of the different creators but i think for you specifically you're in my opinion one of the better creators that's out there and so if you are able to prove within a certain degree of certainty that you are better than another creator you have to you can you can utilize that as a price point but a lot of people that are unproven, especially in the advertising world, they're just they're like, "What? Who are they to say their their video is worth fifty dollars or five hundred dollars right. or five thousand dollars?" What I fear is that TikTok is seen as a slot machine, and so the quality of the quarter that you put in has no bearing on the role that you have. I fear that's how people see it. I think you and I disagree that there is some sort of like. There is a there is a there is a correlation between quality of input the the video that you produce and how well it does on TikTok, right? Absolutely. I fear that a lot of media buyers and people that work at advertising just think, you know what? If I scatter shot across a thousand creators without any concern for what the quality is or what kind of content they make, I'm bound to have at least fifty of those go viral. And that strategy is fine. Like that 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 could very well work. It is that that right. is that is a that is a, a a gamble at that point. But I think you you and I both know that while the quarter might be the same, there are certain buttons that you can press on the machine that give you a better chance of winning. And that's not necessarily sure. the case on an actual slot machine. Um, we, I don't I don't advise you pushing select buttons to try to increase your odds on a slot machine. But but like there there are certain things that you can do to make it better piece of content. And I agree. It's just a matter of if brands also value and see the content in the same way, or if they just think, you know what, I'm going to have the same effective hit rate, just putting out a bunch of content, you know, versus one specific kind of content. So I think it's interesting. I think the biggest loser here is legacy media. I mean, you can't ignore the layoffs that ESPN saw. Um, You hear the reported losses that Barstool's had in the last six months. Like 
you can't ignore those things. But at the same time, to me, the downstream effect seems to even push content creators that are not even full-time content creators down to this race in which they're able to command less per video because ad spend has gotten so democratized. And honestly, Jake, like I'm a bit conflicted in how to feel about it because in one instance, I feel like it's a great thing that somebody with a thousand followers could make money on content right now where there's no way that they could five years ago make money with a thousand followers. Like it would have been impossible to monetize that following, but now in their ability to create content, they're able to do it. At the same time, I'm worried that that kind of content is becoming so commoditized where somebody like me who feels like they put a lot of work into a piece of content, it just becomes devalued because it's seen the same as any other piece of content on the internet. All right. It's not. <laughs> thank you. Well, you, thank you. Your pause there was unsettling, but I think it was a, a, a settling sentiment that you were, you're conveying. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Well, worst, worst case, you could end up in the Texas prison rodeo. That I, I would have to start my own at this point. I'd have a uh, no prison rodeo to go to. Okay, well, Jake, actually, that's one. the end of this. There is one. There's oh really? There is one. There's actually one at um, in Louisiana at a maximum security uh, facility. I think it's called like the Anglo State Penitentiary or something like that. Um, they did one of like the CBS Sunday morning interview things on it or like that little docuseries on it. I don't know if you've ever watched those. It's basically like the morning version of 60 Minutes. Okay. And they went there. It's basically the same thing, just in uh, in Louisiana. And apparently the thing nets $4 million a year for the prison. Mm. So and I'm sure all of that money goes to bettering the lives of the prisoners in that maximum security prison. That I hope so. Facetious. I hope so. It was very I hope so too. I hope so too. Yeah. That was the first thing. I brought up in conversation over the weekend and, and uh, someone's like, yeah. And the, the warden's pocketing three and a half million dollars <laughs> of that money. And right. you know, you hope that doesn't happen and you hope that a lot of it goes back into the, the facilities there. But like if, 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 uh, if they didn't reinvest it or at least a, a percentage of it, I don't think that the prisoners would want to be a part of the rodeo anymore. So. Well, Jake, it's almost like they don't have a choice. I think they have a choice. Okay. We can hope. Well, here, here's the, the optimism in the uh, American, you know, prison system. Yeah, yeah. Here's here's the optimism. All right. Well, <laughs> we'll be back next week with more in sports and business and prison rodeos if another one pops up. But in the meantime, thank you to Aaron Ryan McFarland for producing this episode, and we'll see you guys next week.